Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm sorry there was no podcast last week. It was quite a week with the ASF Day of Learning, which I do want to share with you. But then there was also the announcement of four new undergraduate research awards last week. You can read more about them on the ASF website. Now, speaking of the Day of Learning, the videos from the day will be up soon, but coincidentally, there were some new research findings published this week that aligned with some of the things presented that day. Now, one of the most emotionally moving presentations was by Dr. Jeremy Veenstra Vanderweel from Cornell slash Columbia. He's a psychiatrist who treats people with autism and also a translational researcher. When some new data on suicide in people with autism came out last year, he wrote a very eloquent review, including his thoughts, and we thought he would be the perfect one to talk about suicide. And of course, he was. He acknowledged that scientists don't know as much about suicide as they should. The numbers show an increased risk, but that magnitude of risk is variable, and it's still not clear if there's a sex bias. I will say that one study shows females with autism are more likely than males to have suicidal ideation. Now, rather than talk about the data, he provided his perspective from a clinician about the lack of protective factors in suicide. Now, protective factors include a sense of community, the ability to reach out to others in a time of crisis, and believe it or not, religion. Religion is a protective mechanism against suicide in the typical population, and many people with autism feel somewhat disconnected to religion. So it's a protective factor that may be missing. Religion is not a causative factor. Now, those were his thoughts, and there needs to be more data on them, But in typical Jeremy Veenster Vanderweel manner, he talked gently, sensitively, and frankly about this issue and his experiences with people in crisis. During his presentation, I could hear someone behind me leaning over and say, does the internet have anything to do with this? While I wasn't part of the conversation and I didn't feel like I should turn around and insert myself, I think I considered that question to be about people with autism spending lots of time on the internet, and that may make people feel even more isolated and compounding the problem even more. I didn't take it as the internet is a source of bullying, although yes, it is, but I was thinking about it more of being a source of isolation. There have been studies showing that people with autism are more likely to be engaged in things like excessive video game playing and problematic internet use. Most of the research has not looked at people with autism internet use per se, but problematic internet use and the presence of autistic traits. For example, in one study, autistic traits were related to compulsive internet use among 195 married couples, particularly predicting increased compulsive internet use among women. Another study reported that internet addiction was related to autistic traits. And finally, in a study of about 200 Japanese psychiatric patients, researchers found higher autistic traits among people with problematic internet use compared to normal internet users. So maybe it's not an autism problem per se, but there does seem to be something about autistic traits that are linked to problematic internet use. So how do you link autistic traits to problematic internet use? How do you define problematic internet use? Now, some previous studies have used a scale, for example, the Young scale, which asks questions like, do you feel preoccupied with the internet? Do you think about previous online activity or anticipate the next online session? Do you feel the need to use the internet for increasing amounts of time in order to achieve satisfaction? Have you repeatedly made unsuccessful attempts to control, cut back, or stop your internet use? 
Do you feel restless, moody, depressed, or irritable when trying to cut down your internet use? Do you stay online longer than you originally intended? Have you jeopardized or risked the loss of a significant relationship, job, educational, or career opportunity because of your time on the internet? Have you lied to family members to conceal the extent of your involvement with the internet? And do you use the internet as a way from escaping problems or relieving a dysphoric mood? Now, if you have five or more of these, the diagnosis of problematic internet use is suggested. So I was looking about this online and I found a new study published literally last week on this topic. Now, it's not the most well-designed study in the world and it's certainly not conclusive, but I thought it was interesting enough to share with you. Why is this study difficult to interpret? Well, first, in this study, problematic internet use wasn't defined. They basically used one question that read, do you spend a lot of time playing video games or surfing the internet to the extent to forgetting routine tasks? I'm not exactly sure that's a diagnosis, but that's what they used. Now, normally I'd brush this sort of study off, but it added a layer and asked about suicide risk. Again, it wasn't perfect, but I think it was enough to start considering how to manage what is considered excessive internet use in adolescence period. The study found that problematic internet use was related to autistic traits, that was shown before, specifically the trait of nonverbal communication and poor social interaction. And those traits were linked to suicidal ideation. It didn't seem to be bullying or anything specific on the internet that was harmful. It was more of a thwarted sense of belongingness in individuals where problematic internet use could lead to relationship problems and loneliness. Now, it's easy to imagine how an intrinsic impairment in communication abilities could be a risk factor for social isolation and then to an increased risk of suicide. So this got me to thinking about screen time in general. What evidence is there in people with autism that they do in fact spend more time in front of a screen, not just the internet, but watching their iPads or TVs or being on their phones? Is it just a couple of studies? A recent review of the whopping 16 studies was just published. Yes, that was sarcasm. There should clearly be more than 16 studies. Reviewing these 16 articles indicates that children with autism are exposed to more screen time than typical peers or other clinical groups, and that the exposure starts at a younger age. Now, the content and context of screen use, for example, whether they're alone or with parents, what type of things they're looking at the internet, they may be important. Compared to children without autism, children with autism were more likely to view adult content and less likely to use social media. In addition, parental presence during screen use in general was associated with positive outcomes. So parents actually reported more positive outcomes if they believed the screen time was calming their kids or in fact helping them. Now, I'm the last person to get involved with other people's parenting, but let me just say what the author suggested. Set rules and regulation in terms of time and content. Be engaged with your child and their use of the internet. Make sure you know what he or she is doing. These sound like common sense things, but it does help to have someone say it again, including me. I'm probably the worst with letting my kids spend too much time on their iPads, so you will not get any judgment from me. Another interesting topic that came up in the Day of Learning Talks was technology. 
both Matt Siegel from Maine Behavioral Health and Rebecca Jones from Weill Cornell outlined how wearable devices were a way to protect the onset of problem behaviors like self-injury or how wearable devices are helping researchers better understand the origin of behaviors, both adaptive and maladaptive. They focus mostly on wearables that measure things like heart rate, stress response, and even a portable language monitor. Now, they did not include Google Glass, but others have, and recently reported on the use of Google Glass. Google Glass is basically a pair of glasses that you can get your glasses to fit into or you wear over your glasses. And the thing has a little module where you can access the internet via your voice and have the internet with you wherever you go. If you want to know why Google doesn't make these anymore, it's a great story. It's too long for this podcast, but ironically, you can Google it. Use these words, Google Glass and infidelity. A Vanity Fair article will pop up and you'll love it. Enough said. So anyway, years ago, a group at Stanford started exploring how Google Glass could be used to help people with autism. And recently, they published their data. They implemented an intervention together with ABA, because who knows what would work with this device or not, that consisted of facial expression interpretation through the glass. Kids between 6 and 12 years of age wore the device, which could track faces and classify the emotions of people the kids were talking to in real time. It would translate the emotion to an emoticon and a robotic voice saying happy, sad, angry, scared, surprised, disgust, meh, and neutral. Now, families could obviously disable out of that audio feedback. It might be annoying. Those in the treatment group were asked to use the Google Glass in three engagement activities and once at home for 20 minutes, three times per week with family members and once per week with their ABA interventionist for a total of four times per week. The families obviously knew what type of intervention they were getting, but the clinicians who were doing the evaluations did not. The interactions with Google Glass were being done outside the clinician who was assessing their progress. Now, there was an immediate improvement in socialization scores, but that kind of waned six weeks after the Google Glass intervention stopped. However, at six weeks post-intervention, something called emotional guessing, where the kid had to guess the emotion of the face, did get better. So there were short-term and longer-term improvements that waxed and waned. Did they like the Google Glass? Well, they used it about half the time they were supposed to be using it. I'm less hopeful about Google Glass specifically, because number one, you can't get it anymore, but also it's just a tool. I really think that these real-time interventions using technology now have greater scientific evidence of efficacy, and I hope they're used more in clinical and research settings. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.